Today on Truth in Politics and Culture, we will talk about the activity scheduled for the first day of the South Carolina legislature. President Biden brings his Divide the Nation campaign to South Carolina. Election laws change in early primary states, and they're causing voters to be confused. New studies on so-called gender-affirming care are raising red flags. This is Dr. Tony Beam, and it's time to crank it up. Good morning, everybody. Welcome in. Thanks for joining us live on Facebook and YouTube today. If you enjoy the program, please let everybody know on your Facebook account that you're watching, listening, commenting, and that you really enjoy it. And do the same thing on YouTube if you don't mind. Coming up uh, in about an hour, everything will be posted up to the podcast. You can download it and listen to it at your leisure. Everybody likes to be a control freak, so if you like to control when you can listen to the program, uh, podcast is the way to go, Truth and Politics and Culture. You can find it at um, Spotify. You can find it at Apple Podcast, um, just about any place that you can find a podcast. All right, we're having some uh, pretty nasty weather here in South Carolina. If you're listening to the podcast from somewhere else, we've got uh, schools out, Anderson, Spartanburg, Greenville. They're all not having class today. They're having an e-learning day is what they're calling it. And um, because of uh, the high winds and a lot of rain, they're talking about a possibility of flooding across the state here in the upstate, also down at the coast. So um, not, a, not a great day to be outside. I'm going to have to be traveling to Columbia here in just a little bit because today is the first day of the legislature in South Carolina. And we're going to talk about some of the things that are going to happen today. And, and I got to tell you, um, usually the first day of the legislature in South Carolina means that the House and Senate come uh, ambling in about 11 o'clock. They go into session. They talk for a while. Uh, they adjourn, and that's pretty much it. I mean, that that's generally how a legislative session begins, kind of quietly, and then they begin to roll into committee hearings and different things as the week goes on. Well, that's uh, not the way it's going to work this time because today there's going to be a press conference at uh, 1 o'clock, Well, there's actually a meeting taking place. Several uh, caucus groups are going to be meeting this morning. Um, I'm going to be involved in one of those. And then um, there's going to be a press conference at 1 o'clock about the uh, bill that is going to have a hearing this afternoon that would ban gender-affirming surgery or gender uh, transition surgery, I should say, Um, and would also ban puberty blockers and cross-hormone treatments uh, all of the things for minors. In other words, this is this wouldn't affect any adult that wants to make a decision to mutilate their body or to do these things. They're, they're, they can still do that as an adult, but minors, it would be uh, against the law, and there, there would be a right of action or an opportunity to sue for these minors if they have this surgery, and then later on it, it turns out to be something that they, they truly regret. So press conference at 1 o'clock in the second floor of the Capitol there in between the House and the Senate. There'll be several groups there that will represent the, the idea that we need this bill to pass. We need this House bill to pass quickly so that we can get it over to the Senate. Um, that bill is, let's see if I can find it, uh, the number right quick here. I got so much stuff here upon the screen. It's kind of hard to see sometimes. H4624 is the House bill. If you want to look it up, by the way, if you're in South Carolina or anywhere you are, really, there's an app called SC Legislature. You can get it at the App Store, and you really need to put it on your phone, particularly if you're in South Carolina, because it allows you to watch subcommittee hearings live. You can watch recorded subcommittee hearings. You can watch full committee hearings. You can watch floor debate. Um, you can follow any bill. You can uh, write, communicate with your House and, and Senate members. It's just a great way to interact with the legislature. And as this session begins, it's going to be really important that we get make sure that we're engaged, that we know what's happening, that we're calling our lawmakers, encouraging them. I always ask people 
to encourage those who are, have been elected to office. Now, you may vote against them in the next election. You may vote for them. You may, I mean, there's all kinds of, of decisions that we make about who the leadership is going to be. But one of the decisions that we need to make together is that we offer respect for those who hold the office. I sent um, the senators and House members that I have contact information for a prayer last night. I just felt like on the eve of the legislative session, we needed to, I wanted them to know that somebody's praying for them, that this is serious stuff that we're dealing with, and that 2024 is likely going to be a difficult year. And we need God's wisdom. We need his guidance. We need, as Christians, to be calling on his name, to come to the aid of our lawmakers and to draw them together and for our debates to be civil and for much to be accomplished in this legislative session. So we'll get into the details of all of that in just a minute. But first of all, it's always a good day to protect innocent human life. And South Carolina Citizens for Life is a nonprofit, single-issue, right-to-life organization devoted to restoring legal protection to the unborn and to protecting innocent human life by eliminating abortion, infanticide, and euthanasia from our society. You know, euthanasia is becoming more and more a question in the United States. Our northern neighbor, Canada, has, as we've talked about on this program several times, um, is really pushing the envelope on assisted suicide. And, you know, it starts out as a decision that someone makes that is uncoerced, and then all of a sudden you have a medical community that's leaning into the idea that once you get to be a certain age and you have any kind of health problems, if you're depressed or discouraged at all, it may be time just to take your own life. This is, this is happening more and more in Canada, and there's more and more coming out about it, and it concerns me because it's beginning to spread that mindset here in the United States as well. So uh, South Carolina Citizens for Life is also uh, working against this idea of euthanasia. If you want to get more information on South Carolina Citizens for Life, it's easy to do. sclife.org. Just go to sclife.org. All right, let's talk about today in the legislature because, again, normally um, session begins Today, there wouldn't be a lot going on, but there's going to be a lot going on. We talked about the press conference. Um, I'll be there and leading a prayer as the press conference begins today. Um, H4624 is the bill. It would prohibit transgender surgeries, puberty blockers, and cross-hormone treatment for minors. And then following the press conference, the 3M Medical and Health Affairs Subcommittee is going to hold a hearing on the bill and prayerfully, um, they'll pass it for, favorably to the full committee for a vote and then send it to the floor. Now, you may say, why schedule a hearing on the very first day of the legislature? Well, the House leadership wants the—there there are several bills uh, that the House leadership wants to get passed quickly and get them over to the Senate so that the Senate will have plenty of time to weigh in and hopefully pass the bill before the end of the, end of the session. As we talked about, in South Carolina, the Senate is a much— much more deliberative body. I, it's not really fair to, to call it that, I guess. It's a, it, things move slower. Let's just put it that way. I think the House deliberates in a, in a very good fashion. I mean, I think they take their time. They, um, now, they're pushing today, but this, there's a lot of work that's gone before in getting this bill, H4624, ready to come to the subcommittee process and to the floor and uh, to the full committee and then to the floor. And just because it, you know, it doesn't take forever or, or over in the House, it doesn't mean that the House members are any less concerned about passing good legislation. And so this bill is going to go to the subcommittee today. Um, hopefully it'll go to full committee and next week or maybe later this week even, uh, the way things are moving, and then come to the floor for a vote. And I think this is a bill that will pass. A lot of states in the Southeast have passed bills to protect minors uh, from gender surgery um, and from these puberty blockers and cross-hormone treatments, things that really can't be reversed. And South Carolina is, has been a little bit behind on this, and I think the, particularly the leadership in the House is pushing to get this bill done so that we can protect our minors here in South Carolina. Then on Thursday, January the 11th, the Constitutional Law Subcommittee will hold a hearing on H3424, that's the Child Online Safety Act, and then H4700, which is the South Carolina Social Media Regulation Act. 
3424, the Child Online Safety Act, would make it against the law for a pornographic website to be made available to persons under the age of 18, and it would also have, um, would allow individuals to bring a lawsuit against any porn company found in violation of the law. So it's kind of a double whammy. It, it would be against the law. There could be criminal charges for porn companies that don't adequately screen minors to make sure that they're not accessing pornography, but it would also be a right of action, which means that you could sue the porn companies if they allowed minors uh, to get through without due diligence. So this is, this is an important piece of legislation. Uh, Travis Moore, Representative Travis Moore, uh, put this piece of legislation together. Uh, the South Carolina Baptist Convention passed a resolution at the 2023 meeting here in South Carolina calling on our legislators to take action to protect minors from access to pornography. And um, I'm, I'm going to, of course, try to make sure that all of the uh, people who will be looking at this will have a copy of that resolution so they know at least where South Carolina Baptist stood back during the South Carolina Baptist Convention. So this is going to ha- this is all happening today. The press conference, uh, the subcommittee hearing, and again, hopefully it'll go to the full committee. Um, well, sorry, not on pornography. The one that's going to the full committee today, sorry, it's the gender to outlaw uh, gender surgery for minors. Uh, That's the one that will be considered today. Child Online Safety Act is going to be considered on Thursday um, and in the Constitutional Law Subcommittee. That will be a Thursday morning, I think, hearing on that. And then the other is the South Carolina Social Media Regulation Act. It will uh, restrict the use of social media accounts by minors. Uh, It would also allow social media companies to be sued if they're found to be in violation of the law, if they're just willy-nilly allowing minors to have social media accounts. It contains some requirements, the bill does, for information that would have to be provided to the social media companies that would make this possible, and that's causing some of the members of the legislature to pause a little bit in their support of this because they, they know that people are not comfortable revealing a lot of information to social media companies. But it would be necessary in order for the social media companies to make sure that it, that they are complying with the law, according to the sponsors of the bill. It would make it necessary for, the, for that information to be available so that the social media companies could be sure that minors are not setting up social media accounts. So don't know how that's going to work. I, my guess is that this is one of three bills that are coming out of the gate. Uh, I, would, I would imagine that it will get through the subcommittee process, uh, go to the full committee, and then the debate uh, on the floor would probably center around how much information has to be provided. Um, as, as, and again, as always, you can go, if you don't get the app, I talked earlier about the SC legislative app, particularly if you're in South Carolina, to follow all of this. Um, if you don't do that, you can always go to www.scstatehouse.gov. Just go to scstatehouse.gov, and you can get the same information there that's available on the app. It's a little bit easier to navigate the app, um, and particularly um, on your phone. It would be difficult to more difficult to use the website on your phone. It's not all that friendly, but the app is perfect for that. So I would just... Um, a lot going on today. I would encourage you to pray for our legislators as they begin what's going to be a very active session. You know, one of the things about the session this year, all 170 legislators are up for election. And so that's going to have an impact. I mean, these guys are running for office, guys and gals, and they're going to, their votes are, they're going to be people paying attention to their votes. A couple other things, uh, medical marijuana is likely going to come up. Uh, I, I don't know if because this is an election year, this may not be the year that it gets passed. Um, it, it seems like it's the, you know, we can't ever get a stake in the heart of this vampire. I mean, it just keeps coming back and making an appearance when we think we've got, got it vote, voted down and then it'll reappear. So it's likely going to be debated again. Medical marijuana, folks, just straight up. It's a path to a recreational marijuana. That's what it's been in other states. That's what it'll be in South Carolina. Um, the infrastructure that's being put in place for medical marijuana is not an infrastructure that you would put in place if all you were going to do is have 
designated medical workers handing out cards to people who can then get a certain amount of marijuana for medical purposes. I mean, the, the infrastructure here points toward recreational marijuana. So I would just, you know, I, I'll be opposing that. And uh, of course, that that South Carolina Law Enforcement Division sled, they've been opposing it vigorously. Uh, and so is the South Carolina Medical Association because they realize that you know you're you're not you're talking about a drug that can't be controlled through the prescription process because it's still um, an illegal substance. And they're trying to the federal government's working on changing that, um, but whether or not that's ever going to actually happen uh, remains to be seen. Paramutual betting on horse races is uh, is going to come up. Um, it's incredible that they're really talking about we're going to save the equine industry in South Carolina. But in order to save the equine industry, you're talking about 90% of the money that would be bet or that would be exchanged in paramutual betting would leave the state. Only 10% stays here. And of the 10%, 5% goes to administrative um, cost. And so only 5% would end up going to aid in any way the equine industry. And, and that's only if that money actually gets there. And, of course, betting, gambling in South Carolina. South Carolina is one of the few states that has held the line on gambling. Um, we've made South Carolina one of the most desirable states to, for people to come and live because one of the reasons we don't have casinos all, all up and down the South Carolina coast. We have a, a great environment for families here in South Carolina, and I'm, I'm just hoping that we can hold the gambling interest at bay as long as possible. I mean, I look, I'm a I'm a realist. I'm not somebody who's going to sit here and tell you that we're going to be able to keep gambling out of South Carolina forever. I'm going to do everything I can to do that, but it's a very it's an uphill battle against the gambling interest because of the amount of money that would be available um, by opening up gambling in South Carolina. Um, it's unlikely that pro-life legislation is going to be considered in committee this year. Leadership um, is is really wanting to get to the election because we passed the heartbeat bill last session. It was upheld by the South Carolina Supreme Court. And yesterday, I was at First Monday, which is a Republican group that meets in Greenville in the upstate on the first Monday of the month. And uh, House Speaker Merrill Smith was there talking about the legislative session. And he's in favor of the Human Life Protection Act. He would like to see us go further in protecting life in South Carolina. And I was really glad to hear that, because... That means that the leadership of the House would like to push this again. You have to remember, the House passed the Human Life Protection Act, I think twice um, last year, and we just could not get it through the Senate. So there, the, a lot of the lawmakers are, you know, some are going to push pro-life legislation. And believe me, I'm all for pro-life legislation that we can get passed in South Carolina to protect the lives of the unborn. But we, it, we just don't, it doesn't look like that those are going to be prioritized or, or make it through the committee process until we have the election to see if some Senate seats uh, can be flipped. Because as you know, we had some high-profile Republicans that opposed the Human Life Protection Act and even ended up voting against the heartbeat bill when it came right down to it. Um, so a couple of other things. Scott Talley, Senator Scott Talley, is not going to be running for office again, so people are going to be looking to run for his seat. Senator Dwight Loftus is not running for re-election. Representative Jason Elliott announced yesterday that he's going to seek uh, Senator Loftus' seat, and Greenville County Councilman Stephen Shaw announced, I think it was last week, that he intends to run for Senator Loftus' seat as well. Former Greenville County Councilman and Greenville County Clerk of Court Paul Wickensheimer announced yesterday um, or at least he talked about yesterday at first Monday, that he is going to run for Jason Elliott's seat. And then you've got Adam, Representative Adam Morgan, who's announced that he's running against uh, Congressman Will, William Timmons. Uh, it's not official yet, but I think it's likely that Senator Richard Cash is going to be running, running against Congressman Jeff Duncan. So that's just some of the things that are going to be going on in the South Carolina legislature and in South Carolina as we are rolling into 2024, an election year, uh, let me just encourage everybody to pray for our state and federal elections and our officials in 2024. It's going to be a very difficult, it's going to be a challenging year. 
there's so much anger and mistrust, and that's a poor platform for anything but dissension. Um, we, we need to overcome this. I mean, we need to pray for revival. We need to, to ask God to change people's hearts and to protect us to, from some of the uh, confusion and some of the things that can go that is going on in our culture right now that makes 2024, I think, uh, a very challenging year for elections. All right, we're talking about um, the bill in South Carolina House, I think it's 4624, that's going to go to the committee today. And I, I saw this article that relates to it because we're talking about gender-affirming cares, what it's being called for minors. Ian Ken Kingsbury at, uh, over at National Review has got an article about that. It's talking about a study that was headed by a Finnish uh, researcher. Let me just say a Finnish researcher. There's no way that I would get in the neighborhood of pronouncing this name right. Uh, so I'm just going to say a Finnish researcher examines the psychiatric needs of gender dysphoric individuals in Finland. And the researchers, according to this particular study, observed that the dysphoric population, that is those who um, are, say that they're having issues with identifying as the gender of their birth, was substantially more likely than age-matched peers to have received specialist-level psychiatric contact before their first visit to a gender clinic. So in other words, they're, 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 they're getting psychiatric care or having contact with people in the, that are psychiatrist-trained clinicians uh, before they end up going to a, a, a gender clinic. And the reason this is a problem is that, that the mental health needs intensify after they begin the process of medical transition. Whereas 15% of patients who underwent gender reassignment interventions had received psychiatric treatment before visiting a gender clinic, 53% had contact after their first visit. And so you may say, well, yeah, I mean, they're going through a gender transition process. They're going to need psychiatric um, um, counseling to be able to adjust but experts profess certainty that, quote, gender-affirming care alleviates mental health distress. They arrive at this conclusion through deeply flawed studies that rely on patient self-reports of mental health. I mean, that's one thing. When you look at a study and you discover that the information that's being revealed in that study is coming from people who are self-reporting, just know this, that that's unreliable. Because people, it, you, you have to have data backing that up, something other than a person just simply saying, okay, this is my experience. Because it, it, you, you, when, when people's personal experiences are placed on the table, there are too many factors that can uh, affect that that take it outside of the realm of any kind of legitimate scientific inquiry. So a 2021 study, for example, and back to the article here by Kingsbury, found that prescriptions for psychotropic medications increased after kids, this is minors, initiated medical transition. Well, of course. I mean, can you, ima can you imagine what puberty blockers in the system of a minor or cross-hormone treatments in the system of a minor or as you get more radical actually uh, gender-changing, gen gender-transitioning surgery in a minor, then obviously the drugs, the, the psychotropic medications are going to be increased to try to help these the children to deal with this, with what they're going through. 2011 study from Sweden, meanwhile, found that those who underwent sex reassignment surgery had an appreciably lower life expectancy than the general population, in part due to an increased incidence of suicide. Now, we're being told that it's, according to Kingsbury here, that, and according to this study from Sweden, that it's the suicides increase. There's a possibility of an increased level of suicide for those who go through transgender surgery. And that's one of the reasons Johns Hopkins University looked at this uh, and began to say, are we really doing something beneficial to people who are suffering from gender dysphoria by allowing minors to have transitioning surgery? 
Lower life expectancy, according to Kingsbury, among those who medically transition is also likely attributable to the regimen of cross-sex hormones that transitioners take. Previous research has documented that cross-sex hormone therapy is associated with increased risk of heart disease and also obesity. A new study published by the University of California, Davis, uh, researchers also hints at a greater cancer risk, specifically with gender dysphoria and or prescribed estrogen or estradiol, uh, have almost double the incidence of thyroid cancer compared with other male veterans. The researchers note that estrogen probably has a role in, pathogenes- in the pathogenesis of thyroid cancer, a good indication that the higher incident is not simply correlational or coincidental, but a direct result of hormone therapy. Now, it's unclear whether doctors are advising teenage boys that cross-sex hormones potentially increase their risk of thyroid cancer. And and another matter, altogether, whether teenagers possess the mental maturity to provide informed consent to weighty medical uh, decisions like this. Now, this is why this bill in South Carolina is being proposed. The more we know, and and this is, again, this is just the latest information, um, and and I'm going to say a little bit more about it here in a minute, but the more we know about the way that we are approaching what is called gender-affirming care. Um, We we see European countries backing away from it, and we see people in the United States doubling down on it right now. That's why I think this legislation in South Carolina is necessary. Yeah, we may not have a huge problem in South Carolina with um, uh, uh, transgender surgeries on minors, but we don't want to have that problem. I mean, we want to stake, say, in the law where we stand and protect minors early. We don't want to wait until we start seeing numbers rise of minors who have gone through this procedure, and as we, as we know, um, a good number of them become detransitioners. Now, not everybody. Uh, to be fair, there are those who have been through gender, what would be called gender-affirming care, um, and, and they are... They appear to be, at least, satisfied with the results. But there are others, uh, Chloe Cole, for instance, and, of course, Palmetto family brought her to the upstate to give her testimony of what her life had been like since she went through transgender surgery. Uh, The American Academy of Pediatrics advises that watchful waiting is outdated and that expressions of gender diversity in children should be immediately affirmed by parents and clinicians. Again, that's just the opposite of what we're hearing from countries in Europe that started this process that got into gender transition and gender transition surgeries and puberty blockers long ahead of the United States. Um, the experiences of these detransitioners prove why watchful waiting and differential diagnosis is a fact pivotal for child safeguarding. That's according to Kingsbury. Um, there's, there's a couple of studies that um, talk about the risk of making gender-affirming medical interventions available to children. There was a study in the uh, PLOS-1 features interviews with, the Canadi- with Canadian tra- detransitioners. This, this study involved going, um, it went on in Canada and talked to people in Canada that, that were now detransitioning. Canada, like the United States, has remarkably low guardrails around gender-affirming care. Interviews with 28 detransitioners detransi- reveal a consistent theme that they were not properly informed of the risk, complications, and limitations of the treatments. Reflecting back, they felt they lacked insights, such as the extent to which their sexual orientation, mental illness, or neurodivergence may have intersected with dysphoria or desire to transition, and many said they would have benefited from neutral therapy. So more information coming out saying, look, we need to, we need to put up, we need to at least, at the very least, press the pause button for transgender surgery and all of these other treatments for minors. Um, it, it's it, the evidence from the scientific community, there's evidence suggesting that we, we need to not rush into this, that a lot of minors, if, if they're allowed to work through their gender dysphoria, will be able to work through it by the time they get through puberty and enter into uh, life as young adults, and, and they're fine. They, they, 
they can get through that without having uh, this type of surgery or radical treatment through hormones. So in any event, um, that's something for us to think about here in South Carolina because, again, that bill is coming up today. It's going to be in the subcommittee today in South Carolina, and hopefully we're going to get it passed this year. All right, uh, a couple of other things that I wanted to get to. You know, um, there are election changes in some of the early states that are really confusing primary voters. And let's just go ahead and start with Iowa, because Iowa, of course, is coming up here soon. And the only contest of consequence in Iowa is going to be on the Republican side because the Democrat National Committee removed the state of Iowa as the first primary in favor of South Carolina. And, of course, that was uh, at the request of President Biden and the Biden campaign. Uh, President Biden is, is president of the United States because of South Carolina. I mean, that's really how he got the nomination. Um, Representative Hal Clyburn has a lot of influence and sway, particularly in the black community here in South Carolina, and he was able to boost President Biden. Biden had lost in Iowa and New Hampshire, but he won in South Carolina, and that put him on a track to win other southern states, and then it took him to the nomination. So the changes that are taking place in Iowa um, obviously, that gives greater influence to black voters in South Carolina because there are more of them in South Carolina. It's a larger share of South Carolina's population. Um, and, and, and yet, there's frustration in Iowa over this because there's going to be, the, you know, Democrats are going to vote in Iowa by mail-in ballot, but it's going to be weeks before they know the outcome. Here's a quote um, our strength as Democrats is rooted in the diversity of our coalition, but that has not been reflected in the process we use to nominate the leader of our party until now. That's according to DNC Chair Jamie Harrison. He said uh, South Carolina has historically been the best indicator of who's going to win the party's nomination. And the Republican National Committee counters that the DNC is causing chaos and abandoning millions of Americans in Iowa and New Hampshire with its calendar changes. Iowa Democrats will meet on Monday, but they'll only conduct party business because any voting that's going to take place will be mail-in ballots. Democrat Joanne Hardy, who is 73-year-old, a former county party chair who lives in Mason City, Iowa, said she already misses the action her party once enjoyed. Now, this is according to the Wall Street Journal today, by the way. Um, in New Hampshire, Democrats in New Hampshire are pointing to a state law that requires them to hold the nation's first primary. So it's written into, you know, Iowa's a caucus. The first primary is supposed to be New Hampshire. New Hampshire has it written into their state law that they have to have a primary. So they're going to vote on January 23rd, the same day as Republicans. Uh, because that's earlier than the National Party sanctioned Biden, than the National Party. The party, the Democrat Party, didn't sanction New Hampshire's primary. They've only sanctioned South Carolina as the first official primary. So that means that Biden's name's not even going to be on the ballot in New Hampshire. And whoever wins in New Hampshire, because they'll, be, they'll have to tally votes, uh, won't receive delegates toward the nomination. But what you've got go going on in New Hampshire right now, Democrats are are kind of in a panic. They're putting a write-in campaign for Biden because they don't want him to be upstaged or for another Democrat to win. Um, and, and, that, and that would be a, a big embarrassment uh, to Biden if when these votes are counted, because they're going to have to be counted, uh, that you could have somebody who was is a challenger to President Biden come out on top in New Hampshire, even though the votes are not going to make any difference toward the, the uh, nomination process. I mean, it's just incredible. Now, in Nevada, it's even more weird because in Nevada, Republicans can vote twice. And you say, well, wait, wait a minute. How, how does that happen? I, th I thought only, on, only Democrats vote twice or more than one. Well, Nevada residents are going are to start receiving primary ballots under the state's universal mail-in ballot program for its February 6th primary. The GOP ballots are essentially meaningless since the Nevada Republican Party has decided to have a February 8th in-person caucus instead. 
and has decided that only caucus votes will count toward the GOP nomination. Now, uh, Nikki Haley, for for example, is not participating in the caucus process because in Nevada, it's the the state's law says that it has to be a primary. So she's not she's going to participate in the primary. She'll get primary votes, but those votes don't count toward the nomination. Only the caucus votes in primary. So you can imagine the confusion and the fact that the Republican Party in Nevada has been ripped open by this. Uh, GOP governor was warning that it would disenfranchise voters. Well, duh. Um, I mean, if you if you're going, what, what are you going to do? I mean, are you going to vote in the primary? Who would vote in the primary? Why would you want to send a, a vote in or go vote in person in a primary where you know that it's not going to make a, a wit's worth of difference, that the only thing that's going to matter is the caucus? And the reason, of course, that they decided to caucus was because, now, this is the, the charge, I should say. I, we don't know this for a fact, but they believe that in-person caucuses actually helps President Trump that that would boost his chances of winning Nevada because the people who tend to go to the caucus are more likely to be Trump supporters. Um, that, and, and so this has caused a lot of division in Nevada with some of these vote changes. And we're going to talk more about this, by the way, as we get more and more into the election season. We'll be talking about other changes to the election system that has people concerned and has people um, confused about exactly how all this is going to happen. All right. Um, President Biden came to South Carolina yesterday. Um, as you might imagine, he was in Charleston. Um, he came to the um, AME, Emanuel AME Church in Charleston, where, um, it was, as you know, we, we it had a terrible event there. Uh, white gunmen came in, killed nine people at a Wednesday night Bible study, and wounded and there were five others that were involved that survived. And that was almost now 10 years ago. Uh, so Biden comes, you know, I told you, he began his campaign at Valley Forge, and he pointed to January 6th. He was wanting to use January 6th as um, be, to be able to accuse President Trump and anybody who supported Trump of being in league to tear down democracy, to destroy the country to do away with the government because Trump's going to be a dictator and every MAGA voter is going to be somebody who doesn't believe in democracy. This is the campaign that President Biden has chosen to run. And, of course, in coming to South Carolina, he, he basically wanted to talk nothing, about nothing but white supremacy. Um, and, and in the speech, he slammed Republicans, according to the Greenville News, and others for trying to whitewash the history of white supremacy. Quote, the truth is under assault in America, Biden said. We should know the good, the bad, the truth of who we are. That's what great nations do, and we're a great nation, the greatest of all nations. We're not perfect, but at best, we learn from our past, and we look to the future. Well, maybe, uh, just maybe, that it's the Democrat Party that needs to learn from its past, because it was the Democrat Party in the South that, at, that basically led to the Civil War it was Southern Democrats who, after the Civil War, during Reconstruction, were, was busy intimidating blacks to not be able uh, to vote. Um, I mean, I mean the, all of the, the lynchings, the horrible things that happened post-Civil War in the South were, Southern, were, were at the hands of Southern Democrats. That led, when you got to the middle of the 20th century, all the way up to the Dixiecrats, and you had Strom Thurmond running for president as a Dixiecrat. Now, later in the 1960s, of course, Thurman switched to the Republican Party. But the civil rights movement was vehemently opposed. Segregation was supported. Desegregation was opposed by Southern Democrats. Now, it was Democrats from around, uh, from other parts of the country, along with Republicans that joined together to pass the civil rights bill. But for, for Biden to come to South Carolina and start pointing pointing at Republicans? I mean, it was a Democrat-controlled legislature in 1962 that raised the Confederate flag over the South Carolina Dome, and Ernest Hollings was the governor at that time, and that flag went up 
to celebrate the 100-year anniversary of the Civil War. And that was under the Democrats. So coming to Charleston and pointing and saying that it's Republicans that are trying to whitewash the white supremacist history, maybe Biden should have talked about, since he's in South Carolina, the the history of Southern Democrats and how they're the ones that push back against the civil rights movement and were guilty of abominable actions and crimes during Reconstruction and leading up to the Civil War, uh, instead of pointing to Republicans, particularly if you're going to do that in South Carolina. A couple of other things. Uh, there are some things that Biden said that are just not true. The New York Post uh, from the editorial board called him out. Uh, this is what the editorial board said about his speech at uh, the uh, Emanuel AME Church. He said whether it was senioritis or just a habit that he can't break with so many decades of getting away with it, President Biden, in what was supposed to be a major campaign address, repeated a whopper that he's already admitted isn't remotely true. Aiming to highlight the threat of white supremacy on Monday, he visited the Bethel AME Church in uh, Charleston. I think that should be uh, Emanuel. Yeah, it should be Emanuel uh, AME Church, where Dylan Roof shot nine churchgoers in 2015, but he couldn't stop himself from claiming phony credit. He insisted he'd spent more time in the Bethel AME Church in Wilmington, Delaware, than most people I know, he said, black or white. That's because that's where I started a civil rights movement. Now, you may not have known that, but uh, evidently President Biden believes that he started the civil rights movement. Um, and the New York Post says to that, no and no. He's pushed versions of that time and time again, even going as far as to claim he got arrested for his civil rights activism only to see it debunked. For example, he said that he attended civil rights organizing sessions at Wilmington's Union Baptist Church, yet congregants and longtime assistant to the pastor at the time have said they don't recall any of that. And, of course, Biden himself admitted that he wasn't involved that much in the civil rights movement. He says, I was not an activist, he confessed in 1987. I was not out marching. I was not down in Selma. I was not anywhere else. So, um, and of course, his, his own vice president has slammed his history on racial issues. I mean, when they were still running against each other, um, uh, she said it was personally hurtful to hear Biden talk about the reputations of two United States senators who built their reputations and career on, se on, the, on segregation of race. That was during the 2020 primaries. Um, so this is, you know, this is a pattern, of course, with President Biden that he gets a lot of the facts confused um, and whether that's on purpose or because of, as the New York Post says, senioritis, it's something that the Biden campaign continues to have to deal with. The, and, and, but coming to South Carolina, to me, the real story here is for President Biden to start throwing around the term white supremacy in a state where Democrats were historically hostile to desegregation, where Democrats were historically hostile to any kind of uh, racial reconciliation, where during the right after the Civil War, I mean, there were times when President Grant, when uh, Grant was president, that he had to send troops in in order to back up and protect African Americans who were being attacked in southern states. And it was led by Southern Democrats, all of that, during that time. Now, I get it. The Democrat Party um, has evolved from that. Uh, but th that was when, if you're going to talk about history, if you're going to talk about South Carolina, and you're going to talk about South Carolina history, and you're going to talk about white supremacy, you can't come to South Carolina and point to Republicans and lay the blame of white supremacy at Republicans. Uh, that's not where it belongs. At that period of time when white supremacy after the Civil War in South Carolina was such a major factor, that has to be laid at the feet of Democrats. All right, um, one final story here real quick today before we wrap up. By the Biden administration, if you wonder um, or have any questions about the Biden administration's approach to um, illegal immigration, um, here the Biden administration is actually 
taking a dispute over barbed wire at a Texas border to the Supreme Court. Now, this is all going on at the same time that um, uh, Homeland Security uh, Mayorkas went down to the border a couple of days before Republicans in the House are going to possibly open an impeachment inquiry into Mayorkas because he just basically is completely, he's a complete failure at his job. Now, I think calling him a failure uh, requires some definition because for him to be a failure, he would have to be committed to the border being secure. And the border is anything but secure, so he should be regarded as a failure. My argument is that Mayorkas has been successful because his plan all along with the Biden administration has been to have an open border. And so they've actually succeeded. But they're going to try um, impeachment. Now, there are prominent Democrats who have come out and criticized Mayorkas and said that he's a failure and that the Biden administration needs to stop saying that the border is secure. But I don't think those Democrats are going to be dependent on on any kind of impeachment in- inquiry. They're not going to they're not going to go with Republicans against one of their own, uh, particularly during an election during an election year. So I don't think that any of this, um, as far as the impeachment, is really going to get anywhere. But it'll get some headlines. Um, I guess that's what the Republicans are thinking about. I mean, I know they've got oversight responsibility. But they don't have a realistic chance of getting Mayorkas removed, uh, but it will put more information out there, maybe, if the American people need more information about how bad the situation at the border is, I can't imagine that there's anybody that's paying so little attention, they don't get that, how bad it is. But maybe so. Um, But so... I, you know, with Mayorkas going to the border and talking, he, the way he tried to explain away de- the December numbers, which were just off the scale of the number of encounters at the border. He talked about that, well, um, the, that he tried to blame it on Mexico and, and, and tried to blame it on the Mexican president, and that that's why President Biden was talking to the president of Mexico. Look, none of this is changing anything at the border. And again, it's because that I believe this is exactly what the Biden administration wants. I don't think they want to fix the border. There are H2 that Republicans have been pushing would go a long way toward reinstating policies and sending money to the border to make it secure or at least to get us to a point where we're not just seeing constantly record numbers of people coming across the border. Um, there, if, if there was real interest in securing the border, Democrats would go along with that. But they're not going to go along with it because I believe that the progressives in the Democrat Party are running the party. They've taken it over, and they want an open border situation. Um, and then, of course, here it, it, you let anybody, uh, the state of Texas, the state of Arizona, people that are having to deal with this on a day-in, day-out basis, the Biden administration will go after anybody who tries to improve the situation at the border. And so they asked the Supreme Court on Tuesday to allow the Border Patrol to remove barbed wire installed, this would have been last Tuesday, barbed wire installed along the Texas-Mexico border by state authorities. The Fifth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals last month issued an order blocking the Biden administration from removing the wire while it considers the appeal from Texas. The Department of Homeland Security asked the Supreme Court in an emergency application We've got people crossing the border in record numbers. And what is the Biden administration concerned about? They're worried about Texas trying to protect themselves against a situation that the Biden administration has created and is allowing to continue. They're asking for an emergency intervention by the Supreme Court. Over what? Over Texas trying to protect itself from being overrun by people that are crossing the border because the government won't do anything about it. Quote, like other law enforcement officers, Border Patrol agents operating under difficult circumstances at the border must make context-dependent, sometimes split-second decisions about how to enforce federal immigration laws while maintaining public safety, Solicitor General Elizabeth Prologer wrote in the Supreme Court filing. But the injunction prohibits agents from passing through or moving physical obstacles erected by the state that prevent access to the very border they're charged with patrolling and the individuals they're charged with apprehending and inspecting. Yeah, that's the whole point. That's the reason that the state of Texas put the barrier up in the first place. She's complaining. I mean, the the complaint 
is that the border patrol agents can't do their job if the if the uh, barbed wire barbed wire is in place. That makes absolutely no sense. This is helping the border patrol agents protect the border, even though it's being done by the state of Texas. Texas sued the Biden administration for cutting the wire which Texas Governor Greg Abbott, a Republican, had instructed local authorities to place on the border in late October in response to an increase in illegal crossings. Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton, also a Republican, said at the time that the state has the sovereign right to construct border barriers to prevent the entry of illegal aliens. The Fifth Circuit also ruled in December that Texas must move a buoy barrier placed along the Rio Grande. So all of this is going to end up in the Supreme Court. None of this is is going to be, I, I think, good for the Biden administration. I'm, I'm so hopeful that the Supreme Court is going to rule in the in the lane of common sense here. I mean, if the federal government is not going to enforce the law, the state of Texas, and I believe the governor and attorney general in Texas are right about this. They have a responsibility to protect the people of the state of Texas from um, an open border that's allowing chaos and creating economic and all other kind of strains on the state. And we'll see what the United States Supreme Court, I guess, has to say about that. All right, that's all the time we're going to be able to take today. I'm going to have to get on the road just a little bit early today to Columbia simply because the weather is so bad. I hope you've enjoyed the program today. Uh, don't forget to join me every morning, Monday through Friday, from 7.30 to 8.30, usually, on Facebook Live and also on YouTube. I'll be back in the morning to do that. God bless you. Have a great day. Don't forget to go to the podcast, Truth and Politics and Culture. If you like it, please leave me a good review and download the podcast. Follow me and enjoy it whenever you like to listen. And always remember, this is the truth. God is in control. God is in control.